0: Uh, As we start turning our hearts to hearing the word preached, uh, we have a guest preacher today, Tag Tuck. He is the associate pastor, one of the associate pastors at Zion Presbyterian Church. Uh, When I was still in Illinois as a youth director, I started taking classes at Covenant Seminary from a distance before I moved to St. Louis to take classes full-time. Tag was one of the TAs uh, in one of the classes that I took. And then my very first General Assembly, which is always a party, uh, that's our annual meetings that we have, I went to Dallas and happened to sit next to Tag Tuck uh, at a a barbecue joint in Dallas, not knowing that one day I would have the privilege to welcome him to our pulpit. And so Tag, would you come on forward and uh, preach to us and give us a little bit more of Jesus? Good morning. Good morning, please turn with me online or on paper to Colossians chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. Uh, we're continuing in your series on Paul's little letter to the church in Colossae, and it is a densely packed letter. You've been taking your time walking through it, and uh, I congratulate you on that. Uh, and I, I, should, I should start by saying, and, and I bring you greetings from your sister church, Zion. Um, you have to know what a really special thing it is, uh, the relationship between the three PCA churches in this town. Uh, and sort of shout out, remember that on August 6th, the unity service is coming up. So like, save the date, mark your calendar. Now, uh, we're all, we're all going to be, I'm looking for all of you, I'm taking attendance now. Um, <laughs> Redeemer's hosting this year and that's going to be a great time. But uh, before we read the word, I just want to... Uh, uh, I want to tell you this one thing. I never wanted this church to exist. I never wanted this church to exist. I'll tell you more on that in a second. Uh, but as I've been meditating this week on this passage in Colossians, and uh, this passage and I have a history. Uh, I, was, uh, I was stationed in Germany. I was a member of the United States Air Force, played saxophone in the band program, and uh, was stationed there, served at a little church plant where I was uh, the director of small groups, and Colossians 2.2 2 was our theme verse that we're, you know, about to read. And uh, so it has a very special place in my heart as something that the Lord has used mightily in my life, so I'm glad they had the chance to come and share it with you and tell you that while I've been reacquainting myself with this passage this week… Um, even though I never wanted this church to exist, as I was thinking about you and reading this passage, I was falling more and more in love with you, though I had not seen you. And maybe you'll find out why as we read this. Uh, do you stand? Please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Colossians 2, verses 1 through 7, which is God's Word, truthful in all that affirms. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. Just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Please pray with me. And now O oh Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law and grow us 30, 60 and 100fold. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. It's true, I never wanted this church to exist. Uh, I was in Lincoln in the year 2000 and uh, I was in a Bible study uh, with one of the associate pastors at Zion Church. His name was Mike Shu, And it was a, It was the best men's Bible study I had ever been a part of, uh, because in Mike shoes, living room, the truth of God's grace hit me in a whole new way, like a ton of bricks. I had done Christianity. I had. I was saved. I believed that Jesus had died for my sins. Uh, I, you know, I, I lived. A, decent enough life. Uh, I was getting ready to get married at the time, and we were engaged. Actually, we had, uh, we had already been married when I was in that, uh, in that Bible study. And uh, it was just a great group of guys that came together and spurred one another on in the faith. But I'm telling you that sitting in Mike Shue's living room, we had this conversation one night where the reality that the free grace of Jesus wasn't just free for everybody, but it was free for me. And that I needed that hit me like a ton of bricks and like with tears and snot and the whole nine yards. And, and then it wasn't long after that, it was a couple of weeks later that Mike came to the Bible study and he said, guys, this has been a great study. We're going to, in a few weeks, we're going to close it down because guess what? Tanya and I are going to plant a church in Lincoln out of Zion. And I begged Mike with tears Oh, please, 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 Mike, don't end this Bible study. Don't go plant a church. This Bible study has meant so much to me. We please just have this little group keep meeting together forever. (laughs) He didn't listen to me. And in this moment, standing here with you, I've, I've snuck in and seen you guys all here before. I've watched you online and I've been here in person. And I like hanging out with Ben and Isaac at Presbytery and in other places. And um, now standing here and bringing this letter to you, oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that Mike didn't listen to me and that this church has been planted and that we're all here sharing God's word today. Right? Because here's the truth. In Mike Shoe's living room, I finally found a version of Christianity that was supercharged with something life-changing. In Mike Shoe's living room, I finally found a version of Christianity that was supercharged with something life-changing. There's a lot of different versions of Christianity out there. And this is what I want to ask you first this morning for you to think about. Because if you're here this morning, you're looking, you're either participating in Christianity, as you understand it, or you're participating, you're looking for some version of Christianity. And my guess is you're, you're not doing that accidentally. You're doing it because you want something that will actually change your life. Does the Christianity that you know give you unparalleled resources for living your life in this world? Does the Christianity that you know give you unparalleled resources for living your life in this world. Because there are a lot of versions of Christianity that don't, and uh, there's a good chance that some of you, like me, have tried them out. And maybe even someone here today, uh, I, always, I always make this assumption that for somebody in the congregation today, this might be uh, your last Sunday. You woke up this morning and you said, I'm just going to give Christianity one more try, but if it doesn't work today, I'm out. People are trying out Christianity. Uh, In Paul's letter, there are people who are trying out Christianity in Colossae. And I kind of put them in three categories. There are the people uh, that Paul talks about that that like mystery. They they want a religion that has something mysterious in it. Uh, I'm sure Ben's already told you about the Gnostics. That were people that were sort of pulling things together that were mysterious, and there were, in Paul's day, there were these mystery religions. They were looking for something otherworldly that could break into this world and make their life just a little more uh, interesting, to give it some uh, mystery around the edges. That could make it feel a little more transcendent. And a lot of religions will give you that feeling or give you some experience like that but they don't necessarily have the power to change your life. There's another group of folks that were running around that chased Paul around all over the Mediterranean in the first century, the Judaizers. And when I think of them and I think of us today, I think if you're looking for, if you're looking for a Christianity that, well, if you're a person who's looking for acceptance and you may want a Christianity that is socially acceptable, it's a lot like what I think the Judaizers wanted. The Jews who lived in Rome at the time, uh, their religion was sort of on the fringes. The Romans were occupying uh, the land of Israel. They didn't, they, uh, they didn't really understand these guys who didn't have gods that you could see. And so the Jews were always trying to make sure that their religion was socially acceptable in the milieu of the Roman world so they wouldn't be killed or run off or imprisoned. So they needed something about their religion to be socially acceptable If you're a person looking for acceptance, sometimes you're looking for a Christianity that's socially acceptable. Or, when I think on the one hand of the Roman religions, because there were a number of them, and they were it was a religion you could see and taste and touch because uh, there were idols and temples made to idols and rules that you followed to worship these gods and, and meals that you had as a part of the religion. And the first Christians who were martyred were martyred because they were atheists. And they were considered atheists because they didn't have gods you could see and touch and a religious system that you could measure and do in the same way that you could in these Roman cults. And then on the other hand, the Jews had any number of sects. There was not a a single monolithic Judaism in that time. There were a lot of, you had the Essenes, you had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the Zealots. All of those were a different version of Judaism. And they were, and how could you tell the difference between those four groups? There were things that you could look at and measure. You could measure how good of a Pharisee you were. You could measure how good of a Sadducee you were. If you want a Christianity that, you, that gives you a feeling of mystery, a Christianity that gives you acceptance, a Christianity that gives you a way to measure yourself, someone is always trying to give you a pithier version of Christianity. They're always trying to give you some, some set of religious goods and services. This passage is going to help us steer clear of that. That's what Paul really wants for us. He wants us to steer clear of a pithy Christianity that has no power to change us. And instead, he's going to point us to the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in Christ. And how's he going to do it? He's going to point to the cross. Because the cross, this historical, gruesome event, affected something. It affected something heavenly and otherworldly, and because of that, Christians have to walk through this life on earth making use of unparalleled resources provided to them in the cross of Christ. Now, we're going to see that in this passage when we divide it into uh, three parts. We're going to look at it. We've got to look at the background. We've got to look at the foreground, and then we're going to talk about it in the terms of the high ground. Background, foreground, and high ground. So let's start with just the background in verses 1 through 3. Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul puts his struggle here, it's sort of like, uh, it's, it's sort of like the meat in the middle of a sandwich because in the passage just before, Paul is talking about his work to uh, make known the riches, to make known the mystery uh, and to teach people with all wisdom and those words are going to come back in the next verse. So it's a a thing that we sometimes call an inclusio. He puts these these, uh, buzzwords up here. He puts some more of them down here. And in the middle of it, he he wants us to pay attention to this one thing. And this is what he's saying. He says, oh, friends in Colossae, I I am agonizing over you. I am in agony. Not in agony because of you. You're not hurting me. I'm in agony on your behalf. I'm struggling for you. I'm struggling for you to know a Christianity that gives you unparalleled resources to live your life in this world. I'm struggling with all the energy of Christ to be able to present you mature in Christ, to present you completed. And then, so that the Colossians' heads don't get too big, he says, but I'm not just struggling for y'all. He says, I'm also struggling for the church in Laodicea. And I'm also struggling for every church that I'm working for that hasn't seen me face to face. And at this point, Paul Paul knows that the message has gotten out, and there are a lot of people who have not that he has not met in person yet. Just like I haven't met many of you in person yet. He's struggling. What's the struggle like? The roots of where Paul is getting this from give us a give us a picture. It's a, it's a contest where people are assembled. Paul's basically saying, I'm in the arena for you, right? Later, uh, in the book of Ephesians, uh, Paul talks about fighting wild beasts. There's this imagery of being in the Colosseum where they would actually sick wild beasts on people. And later on, on Christians, Paul says, it's like I'm in an arena and there are things that are coming after me and I'm fighting this fight for you. Why would Paul have any energy to fight that fight for the Colossians at all? Because there is one who struggled and fought for him first. If you want to have a Christianity that gives you unparalleled resources for living your life in this world, you have to grab this idea first. It is is not an add-on to your life. It's not an add-on to make your life more comfortable. It's not an add-on to make your life... um, a, a little easier, the way we add on. Uh, I'm always looking for the, for the killer app that I can add on to this thing because I figure if once I finally get the right app on here, my life really will be comfortable. It really will do what I want. When I can drive to my house and the app knows to open my garage door, right? We're always adding on things to our lives, to make them better. And sometimes we might be tempted to think that Christianity is like that. But it's not. Paul paints this picture here. It's actually a struggle. It's actually a struggle and that's good news. Christ struggled. Christ struggled. Not because he was weak. He struggled because he was strong. He struggled in a fight that you and I couldn't fight for ourselves. He came and gave us the thing that God required of sinners. He struggled in the Garden of Gethsemane when He sweated drops of blood and said, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass, but not my will but yours be done. And He struggled all the way to death on a cross. A historical event, which none of the mystery religions had. A gruesome event, which was offensive to most, but a very real reality in Roman life, the gruesomeness of life in the first century. A gruesome event, a historical event, and an event that affected something. Not AFF, ECTED, EFF. E C T E D. It affected something. It put something in place. It was a death that put something in place. And what it put in place was a relationship between God and man. Jesus became the final mediator of our relationship to God. His agony on your behalf created the bridge that we needed. So that what God required, God provided. And so the first part of the struggle is to know this truth. You're saved by the free grace of Christ. That there's nothing on earth and nothing in the cosmos that can separate you from the love of God. Because what God required, God provided. And if you understand that Christ did that struggle and won that struggle on your behalf then like Paul, you can enter into the struggle for others. That's all Paul is saying in the first verse. There was someone who was in the contest and faced it all for me. And the more that that has gripped me, the more I recognize now, I'm struggling and I'm in the contest for you. And I'm not just in the contest for you, who are receiving this letter, I'm in the contest for the other people that I want you to send this letter on to and have them read. And I'm in the struggle in the contest even for all the people who I know have heard about this and and, haven't, and I haven't met them yet. We're in this struggle. If you want a Christianity that will give you unparalleled resources for living your life, you need to rem- know that you're here today because someone was in agony on your behalf. They may be calling you right now. (laughs) Someone was in agony on your behalf. And someone is striving for you because Christ first strived for them. And because of that, you belong to others in the faith. Paul is saying to the Colossians, we belong to each other. I belong to you, you belong to me. And so we strive for each other. That's the background. Now the foreground. Foreground, Paul goes into this amazing verse saying that their hearts may be encouraged. How will they be encouraged? Uh, Let's ask this question first. What what does he mean when he says encouragement? There really are kind of two ways that that someone can be encouraged. Uh, One of them is uh, the flying goose way of being encouraged, and the other is the running the race be, way of being encouraged. And this is what I mean. Uh, when geese fly, they fly in a, you know, they fly in a V, and they fly overhead and they honk. And the science, scientists have studied this, and they, why do geese honk when they fly? They honk for encouragement. And the honking is the way that a goose basically says, keep flapping your wings, we're almost to Florida, right? <laughs> Just keep doing it. So there's that kind of honking encouragement. It's like, just keep flapping. I'm flapping. You're flapping. Let's all keep flapping. There's another way of encouragement, the way encouragement works. And this word has this sense of the word. Have you ever run a race where you're the one running or you're competing in an athletic event and your teammates are on the side and you can't quite tell if they're encouraging you or if they're yelling at you, right? (laughs) Right? They're saying, run, run, run. And like, maybe like they even have gritted teeth. They're like, run, run. And you're like, are you mad at me or am I supposed to win the race, right? That's like, (laughs) this is how your hearts, sometimes in the church, when our hearts need to be encouraged, sometimes I call it, we need the goose flapping encouragement. We're almost to Florida. I'm flapping, you're flapping. And sometimes we need to stand on the others, on the side of each other and say, run, run, you run. We need that. But how does it work? How does it work? First of all, your hearts have to be knit together. Uh, and this isn't like knit one, pearl two. This is like when your arm is broken and it's a clean break. You have these two pieces. And before they put the cast on, the doctor has to take the bones and do this very painful thing where they put, the, put it in line. And once the bones are back in line, then you wrap the cast on so that the bones can grow together. It's knitting bones together. Those things that have been misaligned have to get realigned so they can grow together. And that's what our hearts have to do in the church. There are all kinds of ways that our hearts have been misaligned. We have things that we love functionally more than Jesus. I promise you I love Jesus more than my iPhone. But if you play the tape on my life, sometimes you might have questions. My heart gets misaligned. And I need, I need not only the Word of God and the worship with God's people, sometimes I need the friends of God to come and Help me understand where my heart has been misaligned and pull it back together. Sometimes in the church, the reason that we have the unity service, the reason that we go to the table is so that we have, the reason we confess our sins as a part of worship is to have an opportunity to take a peek and find out where our hearts are misaligned and to have a chance to realign them so that here in this place, they can grow together. Because when we see that our hearts are growing together, that's an encouragement. When they're knit together in love, we have the opportunity to recognize the riches of full assurance, a certainty of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery. Now, Paul is calling back on this because these are the kinds of words that these mystery religions in the Roman world, they traffic in these buzzwords. And I, while Paul doesn't go in and explain exactly what it is, exactly which religion he might be referring to or exactly which, he, he peppers these, we know that he's peppered these buzzwords that are in there, and the people who are a part of those mystery religions are hearing them. Nothing makes me more scared when, um, when we all traffic in the great evangelical publishing machine because there are lots of books that are published with Christian buzzwords… Offering you a Christianity that will feel mysterious, or offering you a Christianity with things that are socially acceptable, or offering you a Christianity that will give you a series of checklists that you can do. We don't want to traffic in those. I, I'm not saying they're all bad. I'm, I'm not saying don't, don't buy books. I'm don't, I'm not, you're getting ready to, to uh, men are getting ready to study and read a book. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying be careful what we traffic in. Let's think about that. Because the knowledge of God's mystery isn't all those things that we find. The knowledge of God's mystery isn't a, isn't a version of Christianity at all. The knowledge of God's mystery is a person. And the person is Christ. That's the mystery revealed. It goes back to what we said before. That God is, what God required, God has provided and it's in the person Of Jesus in the historical and gruesome event of his death and resurrection. And in that are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, Paul puts that all out there in verse 4 to say, "I, I say this, the whole reason that Paul is putting that out there is to say, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Pithy speech that is persuasive, pithy speech that is, uh, makes, makes churches messy, pithy speech that makes our walk, our, our experience of Christianity foggy. And what Paul says in verse 5 is, though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, all of a sudden, Paul grabs this military-sounding language. Good order and firmness. Think about a, think about a rank of troops in a block, armed, marching through the middle of town. He you say, I don't know, is that supposed to be comforting? If you lived in a place that was covered in smoke, covered in chaos... Where you didn't know your enemies from your friends. And you found people around you dying. If the good guys marched in rank and file through the middle of town and cleared the smoke and brought order. It would be a moment of thankfulness. I know what you're thinking. But on this earth... So many times when that happens, the guys who come in to clear out the oppressors become oppressors themselves. Every metaphor breaks down at some point. Paul says, knowing Christ, knowing Christ clears the smoke. Knowing Christ, knowing that you're saved by sheer grace and not by Uh, your socially acceptable Christian habits, uh, not by the mysterious feelings that you get sometimes in worship, knowing that you're saved by the historic and gruesome event of Christ's death and resurrection, that brings good order and firmness to your faith. And that's what people were looking for. Paul's Paul's not just making all of this up either, uh, because the other part is uh, he's borrowing from the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 45, it says, I will go before you and level the exalted places. I'll break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. In this part in Isaiah that Paul's borrowing from, uh, it's where, it's where Isaiah is prophesying about the king who's going to bring the Jews back to their land, their land that's been occupied by a foreign force, a land that they haven't been able to establish themselves in, a land that God promised that they would get to be in. God says, you're going to come back and I'm going to cut through. And I'm going to give you the treasures of darkness, the hordes in the secret places, the riches that belong to you that you couldn't find because you were occupied by this foreign force. I'm going to come in and restore to you. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by name, I name you, though you do not know me. If you want a Christianity that will give you unparalleled resources for living this life, you need to know this. God came to find you first. Before you knew Him, He knew you. In Isaiah 33, the Lord is exalted, He dwells on high, He will will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and He will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge, the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. There they are, there are those words again, wisdom, knowledge, treasure. Paul's not only uh, trafficking in the, in the words of the mystery religions, he's also pulling in an appropriate application of the Old Testament. The Jews were looking for wisdom and knowledge and treasure. They are looking for justice and righteousness. How will they do it? Someone has to be the stability of their times who brings an abundance of salvation. Not only does Christ bring an abundance of salvation because He provides what God requires but He also can be the stability of our times. This is the part where uh, we have to hold together uh, two things in in your walk with Christ. Not only uh, justification, the fact that Christ has cleared you of all guilt and sin, but this other idea that's right next to it, sanctification. That when you know you're saved by the sheer grace, it starts to do something in your life. It messes with you in ways you never could have imagined. You find yourself in a guy's living room in tears. And it does something with your relationship with your wife, for example. It does something to how you navigate your relationships with coworkers. It does something with how you navigate your relationships with people in a different socioeconomic strata than you. Understanding that Christ brings order out of chaos, the chaos of a so called plausible or pithy Christianity, the chaos of a life spent adding things, looking for looking for the killer app, something that 'll tie it all together when you understand the cross, what it affected it 'll be like an ordered army that shows up in your life to clear up the smoke and firm up all your weaknesses. Yes, there will be ongoing battles. Yes, there will be ground gained and ground lost, but the ultimate victory is established and your life is assured. So, uh, you look at the background, we look a little bit at the foreground, now I have to talk about uh, what I just decided to call the high ground in verses 6 and 7. And it starts here, in verse 6 he says, therefore, as… as Paul says, "Therefore, as y'all received Christ as Lord, so walk in Him." Uh, I lived in Virginia for nine years, even though I'm from Indiana, and so I picked up this great term. And uh, I wish we had a version of the Bible that reminded us of where the where the second person plural is. It's a very important piece of grammar. Because one of the things that happens to us, one of the things that makes us susceptible to a Christianity that has no power to change our lives is if we hyper-individually read a text like this. Because this is what happens. I, I read this and I go, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And what I hear is I, as I myself, only me, received Christ Jesus as Lord, so I walked in Him. Just like when I went to the store, I received this phone. And I set this thing up to make it work for me. And I add the things onto it that are going to make my life the way I want and need it to be. That's not what Paul said. If I do that, then I will look for, if I want, if I want acceptance, I'll look for a socially acceptable Christianity. If I want measurement, I'll look for a Christianity that gives me checklists. If I want mystery, I'll, I'll look for multicolored things in Christianity that make me feel so transcendent. No. Therefore, as y'all receive Christ Jesus as Lord, and look at yourselves. You are more different than you think. What ties all of you together? The gruesome, historic event of Christ's cross. That's it. Some of you are richer than others. Some of you are poorer than others. Some of you are older than others. Some of you are younger than others. Men, women, there are all kinds of ways, political parties, that we can split ourselves up in this room. But something ties all y'all together. And that is an unparalleled resource with which we can move through the city of Lincoln, the state of Nebraska, the United States, and the whole world, if we know. But we need to be careful not to overread this as how I individually received Jesus. Right? Because then we're susceptible. So pay attention to that. But then he gives us these last three pictures. He gives us rooted, the plant language. I loved it, how uh, Stephanie brought it out. Rooted, the, the tap roots have to go down deep into the ground. And they have to draw up nourishment. What's the nourishment? What's the nourishment? The nourishment is that you're saved by sheer Grace. You're saved by sheer grace. It was not because you were smart enough. It's not because you were clever enough. It's not because you were beautiful enough. He came looking for you before you knew His name. And you were saved by sheer grace. That's the nourishment. And to the degree that that nourishes your soul, it will build your life, built up in Him, established. This is uh, this is uh, building language, right? One stone on another. Right now at Zion, we're preaching through uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. So I've, I've got this, I've got this wall thing that's been hounding me and building this temple thing, and like I, I, I can't, I can't get out of the construction phase. The nourishment that you're saved by sheer grace and His justification. The establishment of your life by putting one stone on another. And this is what it says in Hebrews 13, 9. Don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Don't be led away by a pithy Christianity. Because it's good for the heart to be strengthened, same word, by grace. Grace doesn't just start your Christian life. Grace takes your Christian life from cradle to grave, all the way through, right? Sometimes we start our Christian life by, uh, by grace, and then we gut it out, and we wonder why somewhere along the way we run out of gas. Grace has to build our Christian life. I have to enter the struggle with the people that I'm misaligned from, by giving them grace and being able to receive grace from them so that we can grow together. And then I'll be not only, so I've got to be nourished by that grace, I've got to be built up in that grace. And when I recognize that, when I see those moments, those little moments, I abound in thanksgiving. I abound in thanksgiving because I know that it wasn't because, it wasn't a, it wasn't a Christianity that made me smart enough or that was because I was good enough. It was because God came and found me. I put it, I asked Ben to put it on the front of the bulletin, uh, it's a quote by the Puritan Matthew Henry. Knowledge and faith make a soul rich. The stronger our faith and the warmer our love, the more will our comfort or encouragement be. The stronger our faith, the warmer our love, the more will our encouragement be. The treasures of wisdom are hid not from us, but for us in Christ. It's not meant, Christianity is not made to to make you feel mysterious, it's meant to give you unparalleled resources to live in life. Paul took on the agony for the church because Christ took on agony for him, and the power of that agony is is available to you through the cross of Christ. So, when you're tempted to a Christianity that is crossless, don't take it. There is not a Christianity that's mysterious, socially acceptable or measurable in the ways that we've described, but there is instead is Christ, the one who knits your hearts together by being the answer to these things that we're all looking for. And we take the high ground, deeply nourished by the truth that we're saved by sheer grace, built building our lives one day at a time in his truth, living a life of gratitude in light of it. I'm so glad this church exists. I'm so glad to have my heart knit together with yours this morning. Who else can we bring in by the power of the cross? Let's pray. Almighty God, our Creator and our Redeemer, the One who provided for us in Christ the very thing that You required from sinners. O grant that we might have our hearts encouraged, being knit together in love, that we might understand in fresh ways your grace and worship you alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.